Hi, I'm Jana Borges from the communications team at the World Trade Organization. We're going to do something new here at Let's Talk Trade, the WTO podcast. You're going to get more episodes and new formats coming to this feed. Some of them will focus on what's happening at the WTO over the course of the year, but you can also expect something even more special. Imagine distinguished speakers sharing their ideas at the WTO on issues such as the future of globalization, and you were not there. Or think of this eye-opening presentations about trade in the 21st century, and you missed out because you happened to be elsewhere when the experts were here at the WTO. We decided to make the most thought-provoking WTO events available for you right here on Let's Talk Trade. You can still expect our special seasons coming in. We're putting the final touches to a series that will take you around the world to meet companies overcoming obstacles to join the global economy. If you are a subscriber already, you're all set. Just watch our feed for more episodes coming soon. Otherwise, make sure to subscribe or add Let's Talk Trade to your favorites. You won't regret. So let's talk trade. To kick off this new open series, we hand the microphone over to a remarkable woman, sharing her vision of reinventing the global order. In her introduction, WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala had this to say about the speaker you're going to hear. She's fearless. She speaks truth to power on issues like climate justice, vaccine inequity, sovereign debt, and the unique vulnerabilities facing small economies. She makes Barbados punch above its weight. Welcome to a special episode with Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados, who, in March 2022, delivered the first in a series of presidential lectures at the WTO. Since taking office in 2018, Prime Minister Motley has emerged as one of the most powerful voices among political leaders on the international stage. Anyone who followed COP26 in Glasgow will remember her clarion call for keeping temperature increases under 1.5 degrees, since even 2 degrees would be a death sentence for people from the Caribbean to the Pacific. Her address to the UN General Assembly last September also made headlines. She warned that rising nationalism and militarism bore a dangerous resemblance to the world of the Great Depression, fascism, and the Second World War. Quote, if we don't control this fire, it will burn us all down, unquote. That's what she said, quoting Bob Marley, to challenge world leaders to get up and stand up for the rights of all people. Earlier this month, she made a memorable speech at Ghana's celebrations to mark the 65th anniversary of freedom from imperial rule, saying, we must never accept that they're first-class and second-class citizens in the world or first-class and second-class nations in the global community. Another ode to Bob Marley. Now, you're here to listen to Prime Minister Motley, not to me. So I will leave it there. I just say we are blessed to have with us today an electrifying speaker. So without much ado, let me call on Prime Minister Motley to take the floor. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, my sister, for those very kind words. And let me first, um, Madam Director General, congratulate you on all of the work that you have been doing and the leadership that you've provided at this most critical time for the world, um, given all of the challenges that we are facing. We are confident that your erudition, but also your experience and your heart will make all of the difference that we need now. Because if the WTO is to remain faithful to its mandate and to bring prosperity and stability to the people of this world and to ensure that international trade does not have the obstacles that it has now, then your work must be a success buttressed by our, all of our cooperation by keeping a higher purpose in front of us. I'd also like to thank you for the honor that you've bestowed on my country by inviting me to deliver this lecture this afternoon. And this is the inaugural presidential lecture. And Barbados is truly humbled by our opportunity to share perspectives from a small island developing state um, because our voice is critical in this debate since in many instances, we are on the front line of these challenging times. The very existence of our states depends on a few things, but the one existential crisis that we all face is that of climate. And indeed, you will therefore forgive me, all of you, please, I ask for your forgiveness if at this juncture I share with you that I would like to dedicate this lecture to someone who I knew all my life, but who regrettably passed on Friday evening, Dr. Hugh Seeley, who was the lead negotiator on behalf of the Alliance of Small Island States with respect to Article 6 coming out of the Paris Agreement. His loss will be not just that of small island developing states, but the void that he leaves will be felt by all who fight to save this planet Earth, for his voice was at the front line of that for the last 20 years. My friends, underlying the theme before us today is the recognition that the global order is not working. It simply is not delivering in the areas of critical importance necessary to achieve the goal of sustainable development for the majority of our world's population. And I want to submit to you that it is not achieving for our people, as still too many people in this world live in conditions of hunger, of poverty, of indignity, and of inequality. If we are to achieve prosperity for all, then we must really try, because if not, it will remain a distant aspiration, far too distant for too many, and let alone those who have no access to technology or who have not been able to benefit from social cohesion within their countries. Simply, we are not delivering for our planet either, as daily widespread climate degradation whether in the form of droughts or in the form of floods and hurricanes, continue to undermine our capacity to support both the present and future generations. Similarly, we are not achieving the objective of partnership beyond the words that are used by many. We use the word partnership glibly, but where is the example of it? For my friends, greed continues, regrettably, to motivate too many that we are more concerned with generating profits than saving people is perhaps the greatest condemnation that can be made of our generation globally. 
we continue to have a world that is segregated regrettably between those who came first in whose image the global order is now set. And I really had promised not to use this phrase, but I have to deviate, that regrettably, we are seeing a global order in which we live that is simply the embalming of the old colonial order that existed at the time of the establishment of these institutions. And we have, therefore, to ask ourselves whether we are in a position to deliver on the peace that would permit us all to live in just in a just and inclusive society in each of our countries, or whether we are, in fact, creating a world where peace is elusive, peace both in terms of security, but also peace that comes from economic justice. And we have, therefore, to ask ourselves whether, therefore, we can live in this global order. And what am I saying? As is suggested by the very theme before us, we know that a transformative agenda is required. Absolutely, but it depends on all of us. And the question, therefore, must be, are we ready to exercise the global moral leadership, the commitment and the political will necessary strategically that will allow us to pursue the transformative agenda in order for us to be able to reinvent the global order? My friends, we have faced a world that has cemented the right of a few to determine the fate of the rest of us. Is that acceptable to any of us in our families, in our communities, or in our countries? And if it is not acceptable in our families, in our communities, and in our countries, I submit to you that it has no place in the global order. The ultimate absurdity of what I'm saying is amplified when we look at the arrangements that led to the P5 within the context of the Security Council. How do five countries have the right to veto that which others want to see happen? If there is no one looking over those who claim to have that superior voice and superior wisdom, then who protects the rest of us? My friends, this is a global order that is compromising equally our right to development, our right and ability and capacity to attain the sustainable development goals that each and every one of our countries has submitted is critical for our populations in order for them to prosper. If we don't recognize that the time is now for us to find solutions with respect to long-term financing instruments, not 5, 10, 15, 20, 50, 70, and 80, in the same way that Britain and other countries were required to find them, as they went forward in a post-war -war world where they recognized that they could not pursue development at the same time as they had to service the debts of the war. It is no different for the rest of our countries who fight, battle now the pandemic, who battle now the climate crisis, and who must now battle the consequences of war in Europe. Simply put, if we have to service that debt that we have incurred in the last two years then we do not have the position and the capacity to borrow to finance our development with respect to the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. It will become an illusion, regrettably, for many. I pause also at this point to reflect that post-World War II, the advanced countries of the world 
agreed that Germany should not have to service debt in excess of 5% of their exports. But yet today, in our own countries, in small island developing states, that number is in excess of 30%. I ask simply, where is the justice that we speak of? Now is the time for the long-term instruments to be able to reflect the horror of what so many of us have endured during the course of the last two years. A pandemic compounded by a climate crisis is nothing to play with. As we all know, that the war, that the invasion of Ukraine has in fact reset the global order. The old one, I've shown enough, is simply not working. Not delivering on peace, not delivering on prosperity, not delivering on stability. And indeed, we do so because the events of recent times literally come after 20 years of what? A global financial crisis. The release of unprecedented amounts of liquidity. A rapid climate change and climate-related disaster world, or as I like to call it, a climate crisis in which we find ourselves. A COVID-19 pandemic. And without prejudice to all of that, the work that we are now doing to avert the next pandemic, the slow motion pandemic on antimicrobial resistance that I'm working along with the WHO and Dr. Tedros to be able to see how we can fight the superviruses that are already killing in excess of one million people annually and is expected to kill more people by 2050 than any other condition. My friends, while we have not had what some call a world war, we have truly had a world of wars, a world of conflicts, where millions of innocent victims, civilians, have been the casualties. It's a shame that it takes this European theater to make us respond to the illegal state aggression with global sanctions. It is a shame that it takes this theater to provide the warm welcome to refugees, a welcome which ought to have been our human response to all refugees all along and not just today. But nevertheless, better late than never. For the plight of migrants is not one that they accept willingly. It is one that is foisted on them because of circumstances beyond their control, irrespective of whether those circumstances come from climate or man-made causes. My friends, it is no wonder that many of our young people globally have lost faith in this order, in this global order, because of what they view as patent hypocrisy. I've been in public life through many of these swirling and short times, and my life has witnessed firsthand, yes, the failure of the international order to respond where we need it to respond most. The countries and global and regional institutions should have listened to the canaries which we consider ourselves a small island developing states long, long time ago. But regrettably, we are now at risk of disappearing or dying because of the confluence of events that the world now sees. Unimpeded, nations will choose greater financial energy, food, and national security by retreating behind national and regional lines of defense. That's what I referred to last year. And regrettably, rather than us seeing an improvement in our circumstances, we have seen the circumstances literally worsen before our very eyes. 
The inconvenient truth for those of us who support a liberal international order is that maybe, maybe some good may come from crisis. Maybe. We may develop more a diversified and therefore more robust financial system if we finally listen about the need for different instruments that are appropriate to the conditions in which most of our countries find ourselves. We hope that it will also accelerate the pace of the transition to renewable energy because we know what fossil fuels alone will do, although we are conscious too that the discussion is nuanced and that a fossil fuel, a net zero world, does not mean a fossil fuel free world, but simply one where fossil fuels don't exceed more than 20% of the overall mix. But a contradiction in all of this is that would this be a defeat of internationalism? At a time when we need internationalism and multilateralism more than ever, can we achieve those other things without having to accept that the only route to them is through the defeat of multilateralism? I believe that we can. And we cannot, therefore, retreat from that internationalism, even if, in some instances, it requires us to take difficult decisions that we might not otherwise be willing to take. There is no safety behind the Maginot Line, none whatsoever. And in an inclusive international trading system that we all accept is critical to solving many of the problems we face, we then must ask ourselves, how do we move from this position today? I want to share with you in a few minutes, very briefly, my thoughts on the role of trade in the solutions to two of the most significant transitions facing humanity, and to look at how the WTO can be and must be in the vanguard of that change that we all need. A comment on the absolute need for us to bring the architecture of a new global order to the 21st century, one that is transparent, that is fair, and that is rooted in moral legitimacy. One of the most profound transitions facing the world that we live in today is the rise of the new digital empires. You have to call them empires. The world carries out an increasing proportion of its trade on digital platforms. And the digital trade changes the geography of trade and allows for the high mobility of people, technology, and services. The digital world is highly concentrated. There are essentially nine leading digital platforms. Using their brand names, what are they? Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google, IBM, Microsoft, Tencent, Baidu, and Alibaba. Even more striking, these nine are also essentially owned and controlled by a small handful, handful of individuals. Never before has the global economy seen so much concentration of economic power in so, so, so few hands. And there's a paradox to blame. Though a few individuals have benefited astronomically, their business model is shaped by what? By the state's data governance models. The business model is that the firms must provide free services in return for freely using the user's data. <laughs> Europe disrupts this model through its data privacy laws. To some extent, they shift data ownership from the platform back to the user. The business model follows the regulatory model. And so if the data governance model does not change, more or less, this is the way that it will be. An increasing proportion for global trade then 
is determined by the ability of consumers and producers to access an oligopoly of the US and Chinese platforms and consent to their rules and conventions around data governance, delivery, and payments. The space and opportunity to be outside of these digital platforms, my friends, is shrinking. Suppose a teleworker, an app designer, or a service provider from a developing country were to try to access these platforms. In that case, they will first face challenges around payment systems, which stem partly from the uneven application of anti-money laundering rules, leading to the sharp narrowing of correspondent bank servicing in developing countries. We in developing countries have been talking about the loss of correspondent banking capacity for years, and that you cannot live in this world without having access to banking services. If not, you are literally a leper or a pariah. But yet, the world takes glee, almost, in passing and putting all kinds of lists, the consequences of which are to put our countries literally on their knees with respect to access to banking and financial services. You cannot have exclusion of people on the basis of this without causing serious damage to human beings and trade in our small countries. They may have to pay hefty fees to be on the digital platform and then subscribe to their data rules to confirm that data governance is a trade issue. That's what it is. If a country wanted to use fiscal measures to incentivize those using other data rules to redress the concentration of one business model resulting from the US data governance model, they cannot. There's now a WTO moratorium, I'm told, Madam Director General, on all taxes on digital commerce. Yet, this is still all highly distortionary and discriminatory, largely beyond WTO scrutiny and the future of international commerce. One of our most urgent challenges as well is the climate crisis. It cannot be avoided. It is an existential crisis, not just for small island developing states, but for all of us on this planet. And it is just a question who is affected first. My country lies on the front line, as you know, between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. But many of you in this room also come from countries that lie between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn. We have contributed little to the stock of greenhouse gases. And I refer not simply to those who contribute today daily, but I refer to the stock of greenhouse gases that has literally driven modern development from the industrial age. And in spite of that minimal contribution, the temperatures and the sea levels continue to provide significant damage to our countries and to our people, where, for example, a drought can happen and half of our country be outside of access to potable water for months at a time. Where, for example, in the Caribbean, a country's entire GDP can be wiped out in a night or in the case of Dominica, 227% of its GDP with Hurricane Maria and Irma. Where our national debts have been driven to be amongst the highest globally by expenditures on environmental protection 
and mopping up after climate-related disasters. And I want to pause here a second, because many assume that we have, small island developing states and developing countries, have large debt stocks purely because of corruption and profligacy, when in truth and in fact, the work that has been done and is being done by UNCTAD is also showing, and in the CARICOM region, is showing more and more that a lot of that debt has come as a result of one, the climate crisis, and Madam DG, I have to say this, although many may not want to hear it, that since the establishment of this August institution and its failure to accept the need for special and differential treatment, that our countries have also seen significant contraction in our domestic productive capacity in industry, in manufacturing, and in agriculture, largely as a result of the people who occupy this room not being able to accept that there truly is a genuine trigger for those countries that will not distort global trade in goods and services. And what have been the results? Before coming in here this afternoon, I asked my Ministry of Finance and Economic Affairs and Industry to check the figures. And the reality is that since 1997, we have seen a contraction of our domestic manufacturing sector in Barbados decline by over one third, and our domestic agricultural sector decline by over 20%. What has been the impact of countries like ours on global trade in goods and services? Well, our share in global trade in goods is 0.000%, and our share of global trade in services is 0.0001%. So when you combine that across the board, it cannot be difficult to distinguish between those countries that can truly distort and those countries for whom the lash is just too heavy a burden, leading to that highly indebted set of circumstances to which I referred. My friends, rich industrialized countries telling poor countries and less industrialized nations that they should care more for the environment will not solve the climate crisis program problem. Indeed, our ability to be able to spend money on mitigation and adaptation is constrained by that simple absence of fiscal space that has been triggered by the highly indebted condition that we have, we have developed and, and come to accept for the last three decades in particular. It will not be solved, the climate crisis that is, by an economic system based on prices determined by today's supply and demand with inadequate regard for the future. And we will not solve it by techno-optimism and some loose change being thrown at people. The world needs to spend about $3 trillion a year on investments to transition to renewable and regenerative energy, transport, and agriculture. And the more we talk about it and the less we do it, the more critical the problem becomes. The amount of money, though, is not the biggest challenge. Because in the last 12 years alone, as I said at Glasgow, central banks have spent $25 trillion buying government bonds in their quantitative easing programs. If they had purchased $25 trillion of bonds that finance the energy transition, they would have had similar economic impact and got us halfway up the mountain in halting the climate crisis. But they didn't. So we are stuck at base camp because of our aim and an absence of an appropriate financing mechanism. In building our coalition for change, we want those countries with capital 
to be united in common cause with those with technology and climate mitigation opportunities. For if we cannot bridge all three, we will not solve the problems and create opportunities for all. Those of us on the front line, we need grants for the loss and damage of climate events. We've been talking about the Warsaw mechanism on loss and damage, but nothing more has come other than talk. Similarly, we need the concessionary loans to build resilience to the events. And as I said earlier, because of our highly indebted nature, we need the fiscal space as well. If not, the concessional loans will be a pot of gold on the other side of the rainbow, never to be attained by us. So my friends, as it relates now also to mitigation, those were for adaptation. But as it relates to mitigation, we need more than that where it is now. And regrettably, we continue to make promises, but not see those promises materialize into reality fast enough to stop the temperatures rising as they are. But to think about international trade, let me share with you what someone in a developing country will tell you about where it will happen from their experience about the trade obstacles they face. In the name of fighting global crime, the uneven application of anti-money laundering rules means that while billionaires are allowed to buy football clubs or to buy urban palaces in New York and London and, and Zurich and to have the mass, vast majority of their wealth there, many emerging market entrepreneurs from our countries cannot open a bank account cannot open a bank account or cannot raise funds in those capital markets because our countries are blacklisted or graylisted for anti-money laundering and very often on technical reasons. The last graylisting coming out of the Financial Action Task Force was not because of substantive issues of money laundering, but it was because of a technical reclassification of money supply from M2 to M3, then putting us into a weight category for which we were not prepared. My friends, we have, as small countries, a thin banking system that no money launderer tries to ever lose themselves in because it is too thin, too small, and too easy to find anything in. Simple. Artificial country ceiling conventions on credit ratings also do not help either, but we know that. Another day for that discussion too. They will tell you that they cannot compete with the state subsidies on developing renewable energy technology, which is being applied in the United States or in Europe or in China. And that the previous tax incentives that partially compensated for the absence of research subsidies are now disallowed in the name of fairness, unless the government wants to be on another blacklist for harmful taxation. Because everything we try to do once we become competitive, list, 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 gray, black, white. That is our reality. And they will tell you that if they come to sell internationally their renewable energy, carbon credits, or anything else, there will be an accreditation process that is more costly for those in developing countries to satisfy, but this is all being done in the name of having a level playing field. It reminds me of the United Nations Charter that preserves the inequity and the discriminatory practices of the world. For if we made everyone equal in 1945, we cemented the inequity of the colonial order as well, in countries and in people. These, not tariffs, not genuine competitiveness and comparative advantages, but these are the obstacles to today's international trade that we face in a real way. And there will be an obstacle too to the efficient and fair prosecution 
of climate mitigation through the global transfer of capital, technology, and opportunity. The instrument of new colonialism, my friends, is the bypassing of treaty-based organizations to pursue the discriminatory application of non-tariff rules on finance, on tax, and on next generation standards, all in the name of legitimacy. No scientific basis upon which it can be premised, but simply it is good for some to subsidize to the tune of multiples of their GDP, and the rest of us have to depend on farmers who cannot farm all year, because when we need them for a crisis, they would have already become bankrupt as a result of the glut of cheap goods and produce that comes into our countries. The answer, however, as difficult as it is, is not to give up on internationalism or multilateralism, not to surrender, not to retreat. The world needs more mobile labor, capital, and technology to defeat the climate crisis. And we need to be part of a digital revolution to deliver better, to deliver better health and better education and a better quality of life. International trade is at the center of solving the climate crisis problem. And the use of digital trade is critical if we are to advance global development. Trade, my friends, as you know better than most people globally, is at the center of all of our profound challenges. And we need the WTO to have a seat at the table to ensure that trade barriers are not blocking our successful attempts to address these challenges. Indeed, might I also remind us that trade is not always good because I come from a region that was, for its modern existence, settled as a result of trade, but it was called the slave trade. And it took away from us the right to have dignity in our ability to be human. So trade is not always good, but good trade can be secured and settled by this organization. The WTO was born into a world of trade in manufacturers and tariffs. It has an inheritance from the GATS that has to be confronted. Confronted if we are to move away from the old colonial order. Confronted if we are to create opportunities for fairness among those countries of the world and those people of the world who need our protection the most. We need to deal with the fact that the world of trade in services and the next generation barriers to trade must be confronted. We need the next generation WTO to be the countervailing force to the discriminatory, distortionary, and inequitable rules and barriers to the international trade in services. And while small groups of countries set up crusades, rules, and standards that others are required to follow, there needs to be a strong representative voice that monitors and values the impact of international trade and speak up in defense of that truly international trade system. Madam Director General, I believe you have that capacity to lead the effort with all of the persons in this room, but it requires the political will. To reflect the next generation WTO, I call on this organization to show a reinvigorated defense of an equitable trading system by establishing a high-level committee that asks whether the war on money laundering the war on tax evasion, the war on the climate crisis, or any of these well-intentioned campaigns have not inadvertently become a war on developing country exporters or a war on small island state exporters. And if so, how can we introduce measures 
that ensure the address, that we address all of the ailments we are trying to address without prejudicing equitable trade. My message, therefore, to you today is simple, that the stakes have never been higher. Our people are depending on us more than ever. And that is why I used the words of Bob Marley last year to get up and stand up, because the world must get and be ready to turn its back on the kind of awful behavior that has led to the retreat of internationalism in a misguided pursuit of national security. There is no national security, I should warn, without international security. There is no national security without international security. And there is no international security without an international order that is seen and accepted by most as legitimate because it is inclusive, it is representative, and it is relevant. At the center of that order, the center of global solutions to global challenges is equitable international trade. This requires, therefore, that next generation WTO, committed to calling out the obstacles, committed to being even more representative, acting as a countervailing reforming force against the tendency to narrow exclusive trade relationships, and with a seat at the highest tables to promote the international trade dimension to the world's problems. I believe that this organization, under the new and decisive leadership that it has now, recognizes that we live in a new world and recognizes that we can rise to this point challenge and we can do better because our people expect better from us. Thank you. My name is Atalia Molokomen. I'm the ambassador and permanent representative of Botswana to the UN and the WTO here in Geneva. The responsibility to take forward to redefine the, the global order, uh, Honorable Prime Minister, does it lie first and foremost with world leaders like yourself and the multilateral institutions? or whether it is the individuals, the people in this room and online who have an equal responsibility and role to play. Nothing happens in this world unless there's a mass movement. You only have to look at the bringing down of apartheid. I, I refer apartheid to apartheid because I was a student in London. I was there when I saw the activism of the young members of the society believe and say we were not prepared to accept decades of of, of discrimination and, and exploitation any further. And that spawned a movement of young people globally so that when Mrs. Thatcher and President Reagan refused to yield to the whole issue of sanctions, their populations literally told them where to go. And, and I think that you are seeing it also with the climate crisis movement, that as many governments that didn't want to look and believe that it was real, it's this ordinary citizens of the world. And you have a young generation today who perhaps because they have had the benefit of, of, of more things than most generations before them, have the luxury now to focus on conscience. And they are focusing on conscience. They are focusing on what is right because it is their world that we're mashing up. It is their world that we're taking from them. So that I really believe that it's a combination of the leaders it's a combination of the international institutions such as this and those of us who work with and in these institutions. But above all else, it is about ordinary citizens claiming ownership of their destiny. 
And that is where I talk about global moral strategic leadership, not just from the point of view of governments, but from all of the institutions and individuals that influence our lives. I didn't know you were going to ask me any questions. <laughs> I think people here have much time to listen to me, so I was hoping the Prime Minister will do all the work today. Um, but I, I, seriously, uh, I couldn't agree uh, with the Prime Minister more. Uh, when you say who bears responsibility, I always start by saying responsibility starts with you. It starts with you, it starts with me. Most of the time in the world when something needs to change, we are looking for who is going to change it for us. And I always say, you know, you have to be the change you wish. So if you want something to change, ask yourself first, what can I do to make this happen? Never believe that as an individual you have no power. I just don't believe that. An individual, as an individual, you have the power to change something. And you also have the power to get others to help you change things. So those who look to the leaders all the time, oh, I can't do this unless the government does that, or unless my leaders do that, I say to them, no. Start by, what can I do? Maybe by your very action, and your ability to mobilize others to act, you can make your leaders listen. Thank you. Thank you. This, we have come to the end, uh, Excellencies, Prime Minister, DG. Thank you to everybody for joining us. Merci, thank you, and goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to the Let's Talk Trade podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe whatever you listen to your favorite podcasts and stay tuned for more. You may also want to listen to Trade Goals, the Let's Talk Trade season about the global value chain of football. It is the perfect companion to the Women's Football World Cup in July and August. And if you'd like to listen to the full lecture by Mia Motley here at the WTO last year, please take a look at the show notes. The link is there. Until next time.